Welcome to Stories from the Center of the Universe, the podcast about the human experience. Chris Corpus, welcome to the Center of the Universe. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. This is kind of different. This is a different platform for me. That's probably like only the fourth time I've FaceTime in my whole life, man. I'm used to like the corded phones downstairs in the basement where you're laying on the ground and not have to worry about what the other people are seeing, what you're doing, whether you're dressed or anything, you know what I mean? So it's just kind of awkward. Like, what if I start to want to randomly pick my nose? But now I can see my reflection. So I guess it's just, yeah, I'll just you, be you stuck could, looking at myself. You could stare at yourself the whole time if you want. Uh, yeah, th- this is like uh, FaceTime with steroids. I think we're actually in a, technically in a broadcast studio, whatever that means. I don't oh, even know what that means. But yeah, it's basically Zoom. I have the face for radio, so it's perfect. So I don't know. Yeah, you, you and me both, which is why I only publish the audio, Chris. Nice. Yeah. Hey, uh, so I guess we should mention that you and I met each other. It's been, what, a month and a half or so? I think about that. Yeah. My days kind of run together as far as work. You know? Yeah. Yeah. No, I get it. So my wife and I were in New Orleans celebrating our 25th anniversary. We had been there uh, just after we got engaged. It was the last time we were there. So it had been a minute. And then the last full day we're there, we're like, let's just go hang out, see what the, the, the day does for us. And my wife said that was the best part of her trip, hanging with uh, the folks at the bar and you as the bartender. And nice. I think we have to start with, you asked me if I like golf, because there's a giant screen by the bar. And I said, yeah, I follow golf. And you told me you were a Justin Thomas guy. And then we got into it. And I don't know how you transitioned to uh, you playing 18 with a couple of kids that play in college. And then uh, <laughs> tell that story. Okay, so I'm playing. I'm playing out. I grew up. I grew up in Vancouver, so culturally, New Orleans is a little bit different. The whole South is a little bit different to me, um, as far as the way people act, and I don't know. And um, so I'm playing with these young kids. They're all college students and and like college golfers, so they're playing really fast. So. Normal course etiquette for a golfing is you never go in groups of four. And if you know if there's two or three, a group of two or three or one in f- behind you, and they keep rolling up on you in every tee box, and you know, hey man, why don't you play through? I myself want people to play through because I don't like people breathing down my neck. I don't like feeling rushed. I don't need any excuse or any distraction at all for golf. I already sucking up as it is, right? So we roll up to about the 16th hole, and I've been playing up on them the whole time. And Chris, and, um, you said four in front of you, but it was actually five, right? Yeah, the group of five, which is yeah. terrible. Like, that just makes it even slower, you know? Like, And the ample opportunity on at least five tee boxes that they we're waiting for them to tee off. That they could have been, hey, you guys want to play through? It was never like, oh, we didn't notice you, you know? So um, on the 16th hole, there's a, a bathroom right there where you can go, and one of the guys in the group in front of me is like, hey, man, how's it going? How's your game? I mean, actually, it kind of sucks because you guys are a bunch of fucking assholes for not letting me play through. <laughs> and he's like, well, what do you mean, man? There's a group of five in front of us too, man. Uh, so I'm like, well, they're equally as big assholes as you, and you guys should have let us play through. Now I'm playing a, a five-hour round of golf, and it should have taken like three and a half because of you guys. Next thing you know, this more uh, girthy fella, that a little bit probably later in his late 50s or something like that, he rolls up in his golf cart, and he's like, what did you just say, boy? And I'm like, okay, well, now that I'm at the level of confrontation that I don't really want, but I'm okay with, you know? And I'm like, you need to just sit the fuck down, old man, or I'm going to boot that stupid look right off your face. So as I do that, I look over, and guy number three in the group, he's like, oh, yeah, what the fuck did you say? And he punches me in the face. 
And so I like take a step back and he, he rolls his fists around like he's a boxer from like a thirties movie or something like that. Some sort of pugilist, which automatically makes me think, okay, this dude doesn't even know what he's doing. He doesn't know how to fight at all. So I grabbed a hold of him and I gave him a couple of shots in the head. I'm left-handed. I got a couple of nice soft ones in there. And you know, next thing you know, it's all getting broken up and I'm still kind of wanting to come at him, but I'm not at all. Cause I'm 52 and Holy shit was getting in a fight. A bad idea. <laughs> I was like, Oh wow. I'm winded after like five seconds, you know? All right. So sweet. But I still, you know, I got to play that macho role. It's me and four dudes, five actually, you know? Wow. So, um, he's like, Whoa, bro. Holy shit. You're strong, man. Tries to give me a hug and like, Hey man, I'm like, what are you doing? Trying to pick a fight with a stranger and punch him in the face. What did you think was going to happen? You know, so then I go back across on the other side of the green. The all the the youngsters, all they'd seen was like the the tail end of it. Me flailing around and wrestling around with like three dudes. They're like, "What the fuck? What what happened?" I'm like, "I don't know, man. Let's just keep playing." I chip the shot, put it in in two, and get like a bogey on the hole. And I got this big goose on big goose egg on my forehead, and I'm just like, these kids are like, "Wow!" I'm like, "Well, hey, man, worst case scenario, at least you got a good story to tell your friends." Sorry about that. And that was about how that went. Those kids are just like. And then we got to the, after the 18 and they're like, I told them to wait for me in the parking lot if we wanted to talk about it. And they, they're like, well, they didn't seem to wait. They sure seemed to take off pretty fast when you're one person. And I'm like, well, yeah, I guess they didn't. I don't know. So that's about well, it. So our, the listening audience can't see either one of us, but you showed me when we were down in New Orleans, you basically grabbed the guy by the collar, right? By, by, the, yeah. neck, by the neck of his shirt, much like you would in a hockey game. Yes, sir. Because I imagine uh, since you're from Vancouver, you may have picked up uh, a few moves uh, punching while on skates on ice. (laughs) I actually never really learned how to skate very well. I'm one of those anomalies. Uh, You know, they hockey's really expensive and really time consuming. And my parents always told me that um, I was too small to play hockey. And I kind of figured out that uh, their wallet was probably too small, you know, and then also, uh, I had troubles with my mom growing up a little bit with yelling and screaming. I can't imagine what it would have been like with 4 a.m. ice times and the, the, um, the martyr syndrome that that woman had, man, like she would made me hear it every day. Do you realize what time I got up for you? Like it, it wouldn't have begun. So I played a lot of street hockey. Uh, the gun laws are really strict in Canada. So you're allowed to, you're allowed to fight up there a little bit, not really, but it's a lot more accepted. And a thing called consent is a defense up there where you can have, uh, if I say, for instance, ask you to go outside and we go outside and we throw fists and everybody stays within the reasonable man clause, which is the terminology that they use. No, no crime has occurred other than maybe disturbing the peace or something like that or disorderly, which aren't really laws that are seen in force up there unless you're doing a lot, you know, so you could like just get in a bar fight make end up being friends with the person afterwards or you see like the guy that fought your friend three weeks later in the bar hey man fuck you really got that dude good hey hey there he is over there uh let's go out of beers we're all from the same town i don't know why we're fighting each other anyways because we're all from different suburbs of vancouver so it it was kind of territorial at nightclubs and stuff like that in the early 20s like who you were if you were in that certain town like a couple bars had reputations for if you didn't go there if you go there looking for fights you're just gonna get the shit kicked out of you because it'd be like 20 or 30 dudes from that town in that bar at all times kind of thing so it's just weird different yeah so uh you were born in vancouver and how old were you when you left vancouver um i was born in tacoma washington oh, and then i actually american. Up, i'm actually american i was raised in canada parents bought me up there when i was um three my dad worked for pacific tell and then got a job with bc tell which is the 
was the telephone company out there. Now it's called TELUS and it's a conglomerate of British Columbia, Alberta and Saskatchewan are all one big group. Um, so I moved back to the States in 2001. So you were, you were in your what? Thirties, almost 40 when you uh, came back to the States. Yeah. 30, 30 years old. I just turned 30. My kid was like four. I just, uh, Vancouver was going too fast for me. A lot of my friends were involved with growing tomatoes in their basement and hanging around with dudes on bikes and stuff like that. And I didn't think that that was going to go anywhere fast. I was one of the few ones that had like a young kid and I just didn't want, I like, okay, I'm born in the States. I got a clean slate. I can just come down here and start all over again, which I kind of did, you know, but I got stuck doing stuff down here too, though, which I think was part of the allure of wanting to interview me a little bit about just some of the things that happened. Right. Yeah. So, uh, so you, you're American born, spent a good couple decades it sounds like in canada and yeah then, like uh, 27 years 26 years yeah so two and a half decades uh or do you consider yourself more of a canadian or, or more of an american i'd have to say more of an american because i've spent more of my adult life in the states and the whole time that i was living in canada i always considered myself american i learned a lot about like the different states and capitals and u.s history and just basic stuff. Just, well, the whole little bit of like a lot of young dudes have with a fascination of like war. And like, I like really was into like world war two boats and making aircraft carrier models and stuff like that. And I always thought it was really fascinating and airplanes like world war two fighter planes and stuff like that. Had some of them hanging in my, in my bedroom with like fishing wire, like in a fighting in like a cat in like in a, in a dog fight in the air and stuff like that. And so I always kind of really considered myself as American, but I take a lot of pride in growing up in Canada and being a part of Canada too. So I'm, I'm like just North American. I just tell people that, man, I grew up 10 minutes on both sides of the border. I, I don't really differentiate that much. There's a lot of good on both sides and it was really just hard. I just grew up up there kind of thing, you know, cause they're really similar, a lot more similar than different for sure. Yeah. So Vancouver is what a top three Canadian city in terms of, population or just pure size or economy or however you want to think about it right it's a, it's a really big city it is it's number three population wise and i'm not sure about economy gdp it's probably bigger than montreal but less than toronto because uh quebec has turned into like a welfare province over the last decade or so where they're not actually they don't have gross domestic product in the in the in the good and canada has distribution program set up so whatever you make as a province each year you subsidize a province that lost money so like the the very back east of canada is super welfare because they them in like the united states outfished the the atlantic cod so they got rid of a whole species of fish that was their livelihood right so newfoundland and new brunswick and stuff they're not there's not a lot of economic growth there british columbia alberta saskatchewan a little tiny bit and ontario make all the province all the money in the in Canada, a little bit of Manitoba, I guess, too. So, yeah, why, I forgot what I was going to say. No, you're, you're all good. So, uh, I guess, what was it like growing up in, in Vancouver? I, I've never been to Vancouver. I know they had the Olympics there. What? I don't even remember what year it was. I think uh, 2012, I think. Yeah. Um, so. It was really cool. It was, it was cool because I watched a, a city just like – grow in size like you look at pictures from like the 70s where i lived in this in like the 60s and it was just urban sprawl went from like a million people to like three over three million people now and the cities all grew and the suburbs all grew and the city just slowly spread out like um for instance like the i lived in 
Delta and then there was Surrey and then Langley to the east of that. And as you got more east on that side of the river, it became more rural, more farmland and stuff like that. But that urban sprawl has now gotten that big. I haven't been back up there in a long time, but I look at pictures of where I see an address and I can envision that intersection back then. And it's just, so Vancouver just exploded. It's the cost of living there is absolutely crazy. Housing costs are absolutely insane. I'm super glad that I live in the Southern United States for the ability to, be able to afford a home because nowhere on the west coast at all can you at all like even the county that i lived in in washington state it's five hundred thousand dollars for a crappy house built in the 20s you know that you're going to have like a hundred year old problems and plumbing and rot and everything like you, you're not getting in a good house for less than six or seven hundred thousand dollars and the economy from what i know of like big air big companies that you could like make six figures guaranteed there's a hospital there is a, a refinery and there's a university and the university is 20% of the population of that town. And then, so that whole County is like almost impossible to um, live in too. I'm sorry if I'm lacking the sense of humor that I did that day that you met me. <laughs> yeah. No, it's all good. Uh, so the economy for Vancouver is based primarily on what? Uh, a lot of tourism. There's a lot of, uh, I would have to think there's some, there's a lot of like corporate head. There's some corporate head offices there. I don't know what the number one export is in British Columbia anymore. It used to be like lumber and stuff like that. Uh, tourism is huge. It has a really big central business district. So banking, I guess would be phenomenal in that. I actually haven't looked at what the major things are in it. Being in the States more, I could probably maybe tell you a little bit more about Seattle just because how much that area has grown with technology versus Vancouver's money. A lot of it comes in from China. A lot of the money comes in the, North America in general, especially on the West Coast, is one of the reasons why the price, theoretically, why the one of the reasons, reasons housing prices got up so much is because China uses North America like we use the Cayman Islands. They're allowed to shelter money over here. And then so British Columbia actually added a foreign home buyers tax. They are added a um, empty home tax because about 20 years ago, like one in five houses in Vancouver was sitting empty because all these three-year-olds in China were getting them gifted. So it's cool that all, all the money that you're making out of that house. And if I don't know if you're familiar with uh, um, economics of leakages and injections, you're not getting any injections into that economy that you should out of that house other than property tax. So there isn't four or five people in that house buying gas, buying groceries, paying gas bills, doing this, doing nothing. So you're losing that. And the only, I think the only people that would be able to have any advantage of that would be like students because now your class size is smaller. You know, it should be 31, but there isn't enough kids to – get above 25 yeah and then seattle yeah yeah and the technology sector in you know in uh washington state has just made that absolutely crazy there's no uh state income tax in washington state so that's i never really thought of that as a bonus until people started to hate about california and their 13 percent weather tax that they have there right so even louisiana has a two percent state income tax and i don't know where the hell that goes because the state's like 40 percent poverty yeah, uh, we'll get we'll get to Louisiana in, in a bit. So, when you were at school in Canada, were were you uh, a, a good student, more of an athlete? Did did you hang out with uh, the good crowd, the the wrong crowd? What what was um, like in Canada? Uh, so, I was going to a Catholic school. I hung out with hung out with a lot of Filipino kids. So right away, all the cops up there thought that I was a gang member because I was a white dude hanging out with Asians. 
So I was in a gang, I was put in like gang file when I was like 15, 16 years old. By the time I was 21 living up there, I'd gotten in some trouble. I got, um, I'm in recovery for alcoholism. I was an active, active addict alcoholic from like 17 until in my thirties with some time in between of some dryness, but not necessarily being clean as well. So, um, I started getting in some trouble. I, I spent my 19th birthday in jail up in Canada. And whereas, um, it was a super old jail and you could go out to, all of the general population would have to either go to yard or lock up at the same time. So 120 dudes would all be in one yard at one time. So when you're 19 years old and you're sitting there going, what the fuck did I do, man? Holy crap. And like, there's dudes with like back then, like tattoos were rare, you know, like dudes that had tattoos were like scary dudes, not like not some barista dude with a, with mustache wax and like skinny jeans, you know, like it, like in some of these dudes were just like ripped to shit too, like done a lot of time up there. And everyone in gender population is the, from me, the guy that's in there for getting in a fight to the guy that's on a murder beef. Everyone's in the same thing. You're not, you're not differentiated. Maybe you would be on your, what, what uh, unit you go back to that you stay on. They'll classify you a little tiny bit, but as far as yard goes, it's everybody in there. Right. So um, then I, I moved to the States. I got, a, I got in some trouble. Yeah. There um, I continued to drink and party and kind of couch surfed and really did nothing. Gotten some more trouble. And then I, I moved to Utah and I showed up, I showed up in Salt Lake City when I was 20 years old. Uh, it was the only place that I had relatives. I got a welfare check from Canada, and they give you cash up there. So I got the $500 welfare check. Crossed the border with some friends. We got drunk the night before. Filled like the bathtub full of like beer because it was so much so cheap, and we could, we had someone that was 21 that could buy it because I wasn't even 21 yet. And uh, I drove. I I took the Greyhound all the way. A Dramamine fueled bus ride to salt lake city where if you take too much dramamine which is that motion sickness bill you'll hallucinate and stuff like that so i knew damn well that i was going to hallucinate and i told myself that because fortunately or unfortunately i'd done some hallucinogens in the past and i knew that you know you have to get the mindset of like okay you're going to be on drugs let's just wrap your head around this it's never going to get too crazy because when it's all at all is you're just high right so i showed up there i ended up uh living there for a while, like really shitty job. I was working at like a Burger King and stuff like that. I couldn't find any good work, mostly because I was drinking and I couldn't afford to get ahead. I was living in a little bachelor's, like a studio apartment with this old lady that lived next door. And then I got drunk one night and decided that, you know, I was still racking up long distance bills with different phone companies, talking to girls that I liked up in Canada. And I'm like, oh, I got all drunk one night and I'm like, I'm going to drive back up to Canada. So then uh, I ended up like, growing up the way I did and maybe knew a little trick or two about how to start cars with a screwdriver end up jump starting the car and it won't start jump it again. And then boo cops pulls up behind me. So I start running away. I had to get caught. They're like, Holy shit. The way they're that you ran, we're surprised you're white. So whatever that, whatever that means, right? I'm like, well, well, I guess everybody fucking runs scared. That's literally what I said. I don't know what you're talking about. So yeah. So then I had to like, get my auntie to bail me out and how embarrassing is that and i just i ended up apologizing to my aunt like 15 20 years later well with the inception of facebook and stuff like that so maybe it wasn't quite that long of just like how much of a piece of shit i was showing up at her door the way i did and um so then i moved back to canada chris let's back up so all right <laughs> you're hanging out with your filipino buddies you weren't actually in a gang 
you get, it could be considered that it was never like something where like you're really it was it wasn't a criminal organization it was more like as i got older not with the filipinos but with the group like i was alluding to the people that were in the bar all the time we were like a more of a clique there was no organized crime to it there's no uh anything that would like now with the the catchphrase and the ideas behind rico there was nothing like organized anything about that like everybody kind of did their own thing like maybe one dude or two guys were were selling weed other guys were doing this other guys were doing that but there was no like organized thing where there's money or any like i don't know why my mind jumped to sex trafficking but that was predominant already in vancouver there was like i knew a dude that ended up like being a pimp for a while and i was just like and then i just saw him on a local news thing and he's like literally definition of a career criminal where now he's wanted for this and this and kidnapping and he's already done like 10 years in prison and stuff like that over all this time and uh so i did end up being like in this group where when it came down to me going to court for what i was telling you i got in trouble with um they said that in court that, um, you know, this person here, he's part of this uh, Raiders gang and or Brookswood boys. And uh, they go to parties and, you know, uh, people get beat up and things go missing. They're really disrespectful to people. And then unfortunately they classified me with a bunch of people that I'd never even met before that were like career criminals in Langley that the judge and the DA were familiar with their names and stuff like that. Right. And I, I was like the, the, the lawyer goes to me, he's like, yeah, you know, I've been in here for like 40 days. Just plead guilty, man. You'll be fine. You'll be fine. So I plead guilty. To him, and he's like, the judge is like, I'm going to set an example for you and all your friends. I'm going to give you four months on top of that time. And da, 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 da. I was like, so that's like my story of like that first time that I went to jail. I was like, holy shit, you know? And, um, uh, people in that group, they see, uh, I have four that have OD'd two that are shot, uh, that have been killed. Uh, one that just died last week of a couple other ones where it's just questionable. They either OD'd or they like had some sort of heart condition directly or indirectly related to partying and stuff like that. Right. So again, going back to me being clean and sober, that just really, really, really reinforces the decisions that I made and how important it is to reinstill all those things in with my son. It's, 26 and still living in Vancouver and subject to how fast that city goes because it's it's a huge city and if you're only 20 minutes out of downtown you're 20 minutes out of all the downtown problems kind of thing right yeah yeah so you went all right so go back to auntie uh you, you showed up at her door and, and <laughs> what, what what happened next well they let me they let me live there for a while out in like their little camper trailer and I wasn't really doing much. I got a job at like a CVS kind of idea. I don't know if that was the exact name, stocking shelves. And I couldn't really keep that job just because of my drinking. Like I could just go in a, there's so many gas stations. It was such a weird thing that you could buy, or you could, uh, let's say purvey alcohol everywhere in the States, Canada, you got to go to a beer store. You got to go to a liquor store here. It's in the grocery store and some 80 year old ladies working there. It's not that hard to throw a bottle down your pants or something, you know? So I continued to be an alcoholic, even though if I couldn't necessarily afford it, you know, and it never, it took until, you know, way later on in my life that I realized that if I alleviate a couple of these variables, mostly just that one out of my life, then all my decision-making tree is I'm not even on the same tree anymore. You know, it's just night and day difference, you know? So I showed up with my auntie. She ended up booting me out. So I ended up moving downtown and I was staying in a hotel where you pay by the week, like literally like right downtown in the middle of winter. I don't know what the hell I'm doing. Don't know anybody down there. Really. I have a cousin that's a alcoholic that would come and 
kick my door and like figuratively like every other weekend and be like, let's go. And you'd have like a 12 pack of, or 24 pack of Coors Light. Well, Utah Coors Light was like 3.2%. You could drink that shit all day and not get drunk. And um, he just like, we drive up to like park city, which is up through like the Wasatch Canyon and stuff like that and just go hang out. And then eventually uh, I went back up with my parents in the December of 91. Cause that's the year that, yeah. December of 91. Cause that's the year that the Huskies won the national championship. And I, I, I went back again. I lived in Utah again until like the spring. And then I met a dude and we moved back up to Canada. Cause I just had enough of it, you know, or we were going to just stay up there for a little while and then go back. And then I ended up not going back. So that brings me to like about uh 93. <laughs> and so in 93, you're, you're in your still in your early mid twenties, right? Yeah, twenty two, twenty three. And and where were you? I was, where were now you? I'm living back. Now I'm living in the suburbs of Vancouver again. Wow. Okay. But, uh, but then, uh, so then, um, living there for a little tiny bit, getting a little more trouble. So I got outstanding. I got some court dates that I have to deal with. And um, a buddy of mine, so the insurance corporation of British Columbia, which is the monopoly that owns the company, all the insurance for car, I think now maybe it's just basic and you can privatize all your accessories, but your basic insurance is going to have to go through them. Anyways, I gave my buddy like 25 grand because he got in a car accident. So he, he bought like a $2,000 boogie van and me and him and three other friends all moved up to Alberta. Cause the one buddy's like, Oh, I can get us all jobs on the oil field. It's just going to be awesome. Yeah. Didn't, didn't think to realize that it's the middle of, it's the end of January, like a week or two before Super Bowl, And we get out of the car in Dawson Creek, which is about an hour or so from where we're going to be living. And the sign says minus 55. I'm like, Holy, what the, f like it was so cold driving the van up there that we had like a blank. It was like one of those vans with the, the mid engine. So you could pull the cover off from inside of the box inside of the cabin and like work on it. And the air coming through that leaking through was stronger and colder than the heater. You know? So we had like blankets that were like breath in the car and stuff like that. And I was like, and we just, again, man, we went up there with all this money and, we partied our faces off and kind of got blacklisted in the town. I ended up having to, we kind of like, if you've ever seen the show letter, Kenny, the, have you ever watched that? No, no. Okay. So there's like the, there is a thing in letter Kenny where they talk about uh, the toughest guy in town. So me being drunk and belligerent and not really giving a shit. I got in a couple bar fights up there next, you know, we're, uh, we're outside and, uh, Oh no, no, we're inside. Pardon me. And it's like, again, it, super cold still we're drinking pints of we're drinking cheap shitty club brand draft with like clamato juice and but it was only like five bucks a pitcher so we could just get smashed for cheap and uh all of a sudden the tough guy he was like one league under nhl comes back into town and he's all heard you like to fight me and you were fighting after the bar and i'm already just like totally what i'm already like totally like just hammered right i'm like holy shit i'm gonna have to fight this dude man so uh we go outside. It's literally minus 20 Celsius. Not sure what that is in Fahrenheit. I haven't learned that conversion that far down in negatives. I'm really good in the positives. Um, you guys are like, all right. So I just ripped my shirt off. Right. I'm like, cause I don't want the guy to be able to grab a hold of me or anything. Like that. Plus I kind of want to look as crazy as I can. And he's like, come on, let's go. Then I'm like, listen, dude, I'm not supposed to win this fight, but I guarantee you, you'll feel me tomorrow, man. I'm going to get a couple nice ones in, man. I'm not afraid to fucking lose this fight. Let's go. And, he, and he's just kind of humming around. There's like probably 60, 70 people outside the bar watching this in a circle. And he finally like, 
all right, Vancouver, you're fucking crazy. Let's go. Let's just go have another drink. I got some drinks in my car. And then we went, we went over to his car and started drinking in his, his Camaro or IROG Z28, which totally suited like the mullet wearing dude. Cause Alberta was still like, this is 92. Alberta still, still stuck in the rocker era. Like everyone else has kind of gone beyond that, but they're still in like the skin tight wranglers and like long hair center party and stuff. Right. So then I moved from Alberta. We got, Wow, this oh, is great. Hold, hold, hold on, Chris. If you never touched alcohol in your life or, or any sort of uh, thing that would get you high, do, do you think you would have ever been uh, in trouble with the law kind of thing? Probably not. No, not yeah. at all. Because it was just all it was all directly related to the decisions that I made when I was drunk or using, right? Yeah. And just being in just putting yourself in the situation. It's like probability, you know, like uh, the probability of me getting hit by a car when I'm standing on my lawn versus the street or two different things. And it has nothing to do with luck. Even it's just variance, you know, and the chance of that happening and chance will eventually, yeah, there are, you know, you're playing roulette. You got one out of 37 chance. You're going to, that's going to roll one dime, you know, and it was just a lot of being out later than I should be and doing dumb stuff, you know? Some some of that's youth. Some yes, of yes, yes, yes. And I and I there isn't there's some regret, but there is also isn't. Man, I wouldn't be the person who I am. And I had a lot of good times, you know. And I I earned my stripes. I've never laughed so hard in my life as I did some of the times that I was hanging out with those friends. And I love those friends to pieces still. And it's good to see that some of them have really gotten their shit together. You know what I mean? And thank God for something like Facebook that I can actually like touch base with some of these people and stay in touch with these people. And like I'm going up to Vancouver and. December and I just reached out to a dude. He just joined Facebook. His wife's been on Facebook the whole time. Haven't seen him in over 20 years. And I'm like, dude, I'm coming up in December. Let's hook up. And I had no way to even get a hold of him. So he's like, oh hell yeah, for sure, for sure. So I'm gonna try and work something out with some of that. Just he's worked for Parks Board in Vancouver for like he's four years away from retirement. So he's laughing. He's been hiding the shovel for like the last 20 years. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> getting all the work done by noon and then you can just sit around. That's he's like, literally that's how we do it. We just go as fast as we can in the morning. And then I can just fuck the dog, which is Canadian for do nothing <laughs> all afternoon. I, I'm learning all kinds of things today, Chris. Uh, all right. So you're, you're leaving Alberta. You're in your mid twenties at this point. It sounds like. Yes. So then I moved from Grand Prairie to, Edmonton because I pretty got blacklisted, pretty much got blacklisted in Alberta. I mean, uh, up in Grand Prairie for jobs. Cause we were those Vancouver guys and we were all up to bad news. And it's really easy when, as soon as you look at my resume and it says Vancouver, like there wasn't, there wasn't a ton of like resume people, people with resumes from Vancouver at that time. Like, you know what I mean? I was kind of like stand out. Like, so I moved to Edmonton and I, we all rented a place though. There was three of us left by then. Yeah. Two people had already gone home. Three of us left by then. And, um, we rented an apartment. I got a job at like a steak and fish house in like South Edmonton. I have to take the LRT every day. And I never got ahead again, just because I was buying a six pack after work every day. I couldn't afford, I didn't have the discretionary income to be able to drink as much as I was drinking and make budgets meet, but that didn't, that idea and concept wasn't, it was just a part of my life. Well, what do you mean? I'm not drinking. It was just, I'm drinking, you know, like it was just crazy. So, um, lived up there for a while as soon as the winter hit again and it started getting cold, I'm like, I got a paycheck and I got on an airplane and I flew back to Vancouver. So that was in like 1993. Yes. Yeah, so now that's like the fall of 1993. So I, that, I, I, I came back and I still had some stuff that I had to deal with. And I, so I ended up 
getting incarcerated again for a couple more months. Um, during that time, I decided like, I'm fucking done. Oh, sorry, man. I'm, I'm done. I got, I got to, I got to change the, what my ways. And I didn't, but I still didn't realize that alcohol was the root of all this thing. I just have to stop hanging around with these people. I got to get a job. I got to, I got to go to school. I got to, what am I doing? I did pretty well in high school. I haven't gone back to college now. It's been like a four year gap year and I got a criminal record. Like what the hell was I doing? You know what I mean? Like, and, um, so I got out. My dad actually picked me up from the jail and drove me to the school and we signed up for school. I cut off my hair. I had my hair like undercut where you got the side and the back shaved, but the up top is in a big ponytail. So never, never man bun kind of thing. You just kind of held it down until it was long enough that you could actually have like a, a decent sized ponytail, you know what I'm saying? And then, um, cut that all off and I started going to school and I got a job and started working at a bar. Cause I just kept pestering because I really wanted to work at this place. And, um, I still drinking again. And then, um, going to school ended up, ended up becoming a bartender after working there for a couple of years when Mike Tyson got out of prison. Um, and started doing pay-per-views and they asked me to be a bar back and like any bar industry promotion through attrition happens quite fast sometimes where I went from being a bar back to like working Friday nights in like six months because the two other bartenders in front of me both screwed up, got thrown in jail or stole or something. I don't even really remember the incidents just kept calling in sick all the time, you know, just because you get caught up in that, which I'm glad you caught me at a time in my life where I'm not caught up in like, drinking every day after work or anything like that because like you know that's getting along that day that's that's the path that it was you know like all right i work a day shift i'm just going to go out after after work. i'd be like a dui case every day living down here it's just ridiculous and there's so many of them like driving home at like 12 or one o'clock in the morning on the freeway here is ridiculous like i don't understand they, they could like build schools with just pulling people over for duis here you know what i mean and it's New weird that in, in New Orleans, yeah, like up in Canada, they have roadblocks and shit. They'll like, they'll stop the two exits of you getting out of a nightclub. You're going through a roadblock. You leaving that bar, you know, and they don't do that at all down here. They just rented it. And it's more about revenue generation than it is anything else. And it is that way. Like in Washington state, even man, the highway patrol dudes just sit outside the nightclubs and just poke pe pick people up. Yeah. It's the one. Well, in theory, they're hopefully doing it to uh, make, the that environment safer but yeah it's definitely yeah. a generator too all right so, so you're, um, you're, in, you're in edmonton you're you're tending bar um but are you staying out of trouble uh mostly i know i'm back in vancouver again and i'm tending bar because i moved back um yes and no i'm still like going out a lot um i uh ended up having my son like right in 97 so but then by like 1999 i started getting involved in other chemicals and it led to a breakup between me and my kid's mom so i quit drinking because of that whole reason but i quit drinking but i continued to party so i i replaced alcohol with cocaine which is really not a good i do not recommend one out of ten it sucks and i'd have like people like hey man fuck you're doing good man you haven't drank in like a year like yeah i know great aren't i doing good aren't i doing good and then, so it just got worse and worse and worse and then a whole there's a whole other part of this that i haven't really talked about in the sense that um being born in the states i did a couple crimes that could make me criminally admissible to staying in canada right so um when i was in alberta they came and picked me up they brought me to immigration they're like okay we're gonna deport you but you can stay here while you appeal it. I'm like, okay. So I pretend like nothing happened. I stay in Alberta. I moved back to Vancouver. I'm living in British Columbia. And this is from like 94 to 
I got that job at that bar at, in 96 and um, I went into Vancouver once and checked with the immigration and they're like, Oh, we don't see that you're on file anywhere. So I was like, all right, I'm not going to say a word. So I actually worked under a false social insurance number <laughs> in Canada. I just changed one number and my sister's an accountant. And I just told the, the, the bookkeeper manager lady, I'm like, look, 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 just don't take any federal taxes off my check. My, my sister's doing all my taxes for me. I'm investing it. I got something really shrewd going on here, blah, 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 blah. So then I'm, um, in that quitting drinking thing, again, I'm falling, falling back into my story where you started, you start uh, involving yourselves in places and people and situations that you shouldn't. And so uh, I, I had quit drinking. Now um, I'm falling behind and stuff because I'm doing so much drugs that I couldn't keep up with like a, I couldn't keep up with um, a payment that I got uh, like a home entertainment. I, I bought a DVD player and a surround sound from this place when me and the, the kid's mom broke up to make myself feel better, but I didn't, couldn't keep up on the payments. So they ended up finding out the police somehow, or the immigration people somehow found out that I was working there and they came and picked me up on a Thursday of a long weekend. So what did that entail is, um, I go to, I get picked up on the Thursday. They're like, Hey, are you Chris Carbis? I'm like, yeah. They're like, we're immigration. They like try and grab me and pull me over the bar. Right? Like, ah, I kind of try to run all the background. Like I realized it's useless. The place is like kind of surrounded and stuff like that. And, um, they put me in there for like five days and then they bring me downtown Vancouver. They're like, okay, well, we're kicking you out. Do you have any relatives anywhere in the States? I'm like, nope. They literally drive me to the border and drop me off. So I got like $400 cash on me. They drop me off at the border. I'm like, I have no idea what I'm supposed to do. So now I'm in the States. This is like pre like any sort of real cell phone days kind of thing. So I'm like making collect calls. I, call my i call my kid's mom i'm like hey i holy crazy what happened blah blah blah. explaining to her okay as soon as it gets dark i'm going to jump the ditch which is all that can all that uh separates canada and the united states on the west coast right there at the peace arch crossing is literally a ditch as soon as you're in canada you're on zero avenue and you're in like a, a really affluent area of of vancouver where a white dude jogging in shorts at seven o'clock at night really isn't weird right so it's every time a car come by, I kind of hide in the ditch and she picked me up. Now I'm homeless. I got my truck. I don't have anywhere to go. I'm still partying. A buddy of mine staying at his house. And he's like, finally, he just looks at me. He's like, man, you got to go, dude. You got, this is, you got to go. You're kicked out of the country. You're not supposed to be here. What are you doing here? So I grab. I had already bought like a $2, $200 camper to plan to leave with. And um, I had my truck that I was behind on payments with and I literally drove to the border with no insurance, no tabs or nothing. And I got to the American people and they're like, what are you doing? And I'm like, you know, I'm just going on in the States and they're like, well, you don't have any tabs. And I broke down crying. I said, I come in, we're going to, I told them what happened. I'm like, this is like literally everything I know. Oh, and I don't have anything. I don't, I don't, I'm not allowed to go back there. If you turn me around, I'm going to get arrested. They don't even know that I'm back up there right now, grabbing all this shit to come down here. I'm like, I don't really know what you can do. I guess you can tear my car apart and leave me here. And then I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And they, they're, they rip the whole truck apart. They rip the camper apart. And then they're like, look at man, just get on that road over there. Don't let any state troopers go park in the, there's a state park right over there and go cart there and get your shit figured out. So then now I'm in the States and then I, uh, then I, it, it was like in a little beach town that's right across the border. So I was familiar with it staying in the state park and I uh, found a job. And then now I'm lit. Now it's like uh 2001 and I'm living in the States. So still 
actively drinking again because I moved to the States. I quit. I got away from the chemicals because of lack of availability. So I started, um, I started, um, drinking again because it's so easy to drink and so cheap to drink in the States. I, that became my crutch for a little while. I don't know where you want me to keep going with. No, no. So you're in, it sounds like you're in Washington state at this point. Yeah. 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 Just across the border, like Whatcom County. Yeah. And, uh, you're, you're working, you're, you're only 30. Yes. And you have, a, you have a son at this point. Yeah. He's three. He was three at that point, and and you were not a big part of his life. It sounds like at least no, no, age. no. I was the first the first two years I lived with him. The first two and a half years. Um, the following year after that, I had him once or twice a week. Me and his mom weren't together, but I'd still come over to the house on Friday nights or on Sunday nights afterwards. But I was also partying a lot, so I'd only stay for a little while. Our our relationship was super shaky, so I was more or less just okay. We're not getting along. So I go like let I put him to sleep and put him to bed. I tried to stay as much of a part of his life as I could. Did she live in and Washington then, too? No, she just lives in outside of Vancouver. She lived like twenty minutes from the border. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So you were a big part of his life. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. The, the, except for like, there was a time when um, again, dealing with my addictions and stuff like that. That uh, I ended up now I found a different a substitute crutch in another stimulant in the form of meth where i just i was just doing that and that just slowly eroded out my livelihood and i got bad enough that i got in some trouble and i this is such a sad story man i i ended up owing like 30 days in jail i never reported i'm living in this little town right on the border and i'm uh i'm walking back to the apartment that i'm living with the girl with with my kid and one of the cops in the town notices me and he swings around he's like hey you got a warrant you're coming with us i'm like you're really gonna arrest me in front of my kid and they're like, yep so they arrested me in front of my kid all i can think of is my kid looking at me through the window crying and stuff like that and me just being wow this is and i still didn't learn you know all i worried about is like getting out on bail and, da, 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 and i still just so involved in all of that that and my kid's mom is like look man you're not well dude you're not i'm not gonna let you see him until you get your shit together right so um he uh we'd still talk once in a while but i would go like a month or two i was just i was spun out like there's no better way to describe it i was just being really crazy and it ended up putting me in jail again for because i got charged for having percocets uh and they they're each each pill is a felony <laughs> so because i had eight percocets that weren't my script I got charged for eight felonies. So you really got to plead guilty to some of them with criminal, criminal record and stuff. Then now I'm getting locked up for, I don't think I've even told you this part. I just told you that I had stories, man. So uh, now I'm getting locked up. I got, I did four months in County and they gave me 20 months for two felonies and uh, Washington state runs on a point system with felonies. So when you start off at zero, there's no mandatory minimum after one, once you get to two points, there's a mandatory minimum of 12 months. So your second point, you're doing a year and a day in jail and every wow. felony after that, you get at least one point. Right. So I got, when I got to that point, now I'm in jail. I'm like, man, if I even get another point, I'm starting at 20 months. Like I can't even be around these people ever again. I can't like, I'm envisioning like them finding a bag, an empty bag in my back car, just being involved in any of that. Right. And then I'm like, my kid won't even talk to me on the phone, man. And that was my epiphany. That was my ultimate bottom. And that's like that. I tell people like in early recovery or they want to know about friends that want to recover. I'm like, they got to find out what their bottom is. And I've said that to people like that are, I've had a couple of people reach out to me 
I don't know how well they're doing anymore. You know, I just gave them what I can and that's all I can do. Right. Marcus Aurelius is really good at it. You can only, he said, you, you know, you explain something to someone once after that, you're wasting both of the viewers and their time, you know, like that's all you can do. So, um, do you want this to be your bottom? And they, you know, in uh, things at AA meetings and AA meetings, they always have that word yet on the wall. Like that might not have happened to you yet. Like, do you want this to be your bottom? Cause it can, and will get shittier. You know, a lot of people with enablers or financial backing, they don't get a chance to really hit the bottom until they die. So, you know, and now it comes to the point where I'm glad that I've been through some like perspective wise when some bad things happen to me, I'm like, yeah, did you have a good Christmas? I'm like, back of my head. I'm like, well, I spent the Christmas in jail. So really this one's not that bad, not that bad at all. Right. So, um, and then now since then, you know, um, I got, I got all that done and I was in like 2008, I've been clean and sober since then. Um, there may be, uh, I'll confess that maybe smoking a little bit of marijuana now and again, but, um, I've never written my life off over a joint, you know, and then I, I've been in New Orleans for eight years. Alcohol, uh, is a drug and it can, it, it obviously people can get very addicted to it. Uh, you're living testimony of that, uh, cocaine. I don't, I don't have any personal experience with it. I, I know people when they were in their twenties that did it, it, it became, addictive but they could also they seem to be able to get away from it pretty easily but meth is a i mean and you tell me I, I i've been told that meth is a super addictive drug it it's super addictive because it creeps up on you it's not like um if you like snort a pill or do an opioid where you like almost instantaneously feel that little whoosh or if you do like a bump you get that big fat, big fat high. And however you do it, the higher that high is and the faster the crash is, whether or not you're snoring it, smoking it or slamming it, it will go up. You know, um, meth is like one of those things that, it, you know, it's like, it, it's a lot like cocaine where the, 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 the habit will really creep up on you. Like it, I, I use an analogy. It's like starting to smoke cigarettes. You're like, Hey man, can I have a drag of that cigarette? And you're like, man, how could someone ever smoke two packs a day? You know? And then you're like, hey, man, can I borrow smoke? And then you're like, hey, you want to go halfers on a pack? Still in your head, like, can't believe some of these guys get up to three packs a day. And it's the same with like, well, meth especially, because Coke, you don't get, you get that huge high and then you want more. Meth is like, oh, I did a little bit and like, holy shit, I got all that energy. I feel really good. But then you just, you need more. You need more. Then you start, again, that whole who you're associating with is just huge. What peer group that you're in is going to dictate so much of the decisions and how you rationalize and normalize and all of that, you know, like how you think that, Oh yeah, this is tolerable. It's not tolerable. Like I've sat there before, like when I was doing cocaine, like two days later, sitting in a room with dudes that are like having conversation with them. And like, these are some of the stupidest people I've ever seen. And it was the same with like, no offense to like, I'll never use a thing, especially in jail of like, I'm not like you guys, but there was a large proportion of that jail population there. I was like, man, you guys have had some really rough lives and I should have been able in both intelligence and resources not to make the same mistakes as you you know and so and a lot of like dude in washington state a lot of those like i'd say 80 percent of that prison population is there because of uh substance abuse problems like people that are in there for drugs and like vehicle manslaughter because they were drunk or growing not growing weed but like meth labs and those guys are getting like broken off like five seven years and stuff and then the whole point system thing like dudes that are just repetitively getting caught with like small amounts. And then now they're on their fourth point and the month, the mandatory minimums, 36 months, you got to do three years now. 
because it's the third or the fourth time that you've been caught with a drug. So then you look at like Washington, Oregon, and then Vancouver doing that pilot project with uh, not charging you for simple possession. If you choose to go into like a rehab or something like that, I'm not saying that that's the best solution at all, but it's also stops the revolving door of recidivism of like that kid that just can't get off the dope. He grew up in a total shitty family. He's got nothing. Uh, the United States especially doesn't prepare you at all for um, your release from incarceration, at least not in the County jail level. And that once you got to the prison and you're in there on a drug offense, they make you take treatment. Like I did an indoor in, in, I mean, a out of, what is it called? Out, intensive outpatient is what it's called. Cause you're not like inpatient where you're locked up, but an intensive outpatient where you're there structured for three days a week for multiple hours and teaches you some skills, you know, and the meth is just, it just creeps up on people and people don't know. And then they end up like becoming a dealer and getting caught with quantities. Cause they're just supporting a habit and just don't know. And then people that get into slamming that stuff is just crazy. Cause you don't know what's in it, you know, and you're not, you're not using any filter at all. It's going straight intravenous, you know? And then those are the people that tend to be like the, the pickers and the, cause, and the, cause all the toxins are just coming out on their skin. Cause your liver or nothing, or your skin hasn't a chance, had a chance to absorb any of it. You know, I think that's just a theory of course, but like the people that did the needles were always the worst in any, any, any heavy drug use. And, Fortunately, the going to jail at a young age kept me away from doing opioids because I saw people coming off heroin when I was like, again, 1920 in Vancouver being like, I'm never getting addicted to a drug that makes you that sick if you want to quit. That's what makes the opioids so hard is like, they will kick the shit out of you for three days. I knew two people in Vancouver that had habits at $30, $40 a day just to stay well. I knew a guy in Washington State when I was getting all involved in that stuff and going back to the Viking thing where I would just, that was... The reason why I had them at my house was because I just keep pills for a couple of dudes that I know that had really bad opioid problems. And if they needed something, then I'd be like, come over here, man. I got a couple of things for you. And then they trade me something else or something, you know? So, so you're, yeah, you're right about math being the worst. Yeah. Well, I mean, I had heard it. You, you've, oh. you've lived it. Um, so your son stops talking to you. Um, that that's becomes your epiphany and your rock bottom. How old was he when that started? Roughly. he was 10 he was 10 and, he was and 10, that, that 10 going to 11 going on to 11 and i hadn't seen him in almost six eight months and been in prison now for another six or eight months so i haven't like even talked to him on the phone in almost a year and he just didn't even want to talk to me and i just broke my heart i'm in tears in front of like hardcore prison inmates you know like this is a camp so the camp is minimum security. So you're there's two ends of the population that's in a camp, and that's the people that really didn't do a lot. Washington State again, they have a they have a scoring system. The younger you are, and the more violent the crime it is, the higher likelihood you're going to max out as far as um level of incarceration being like minimum, medium, max, super max kind of thing, right? And so the camp is a minimum security. So that's the, those people, and it's the people coming off like doing five, seven year bits that have made their way to minimum security. So none of these guys want anything to do with any of that petty small shit. So I just, that part of it was so like uncontrollable to me that like, wow, now all these people, not that anyone ever cared. And I know damn well that the spotlight, spotlight effect was in effect there, but it's still like, wow, I'm uncontrollably crying in front of like grown men all because of what, because of drugs and alcohol, man, I need to just get the F away from it. Cause like, like I said, like almost everybody in there was for that, man, you know, they're breaking uh or their fourth, uh, 
protection order violation. I can't believe it, man. I, you know, I just, I'm just trying to call her. Like, well, and he, he, he broke your no contact order four times, dude. And you know that the fourth time's a, a year and a day. So you really, you know, so like, it's just like, well, that level of like, why am I, involving myself with this peer group when i know i'm not arrogant at all but i know that i'm more intelligent if my mind's clear to not to do any of this shit and it's just so enveloped and it just clouds your judgment so much you know you're not thinking rationally you're not really who you are you know so you're in you're in your late 30s you've decided you you want to get sober walk me through how you did that um well the the 13 months that I was incarcerated for the 395 days that I did in a row was a really good foundation. You know, when I, I got arrested on that day, me and the girl that I was staying with and hanging out with, uh, she just got caught shoplifting and I was in the vehicle. So, and there was like a little tiny, um, like sigh of relief. Like it's finally over, man because we were living in a hotel. All my stuff was packed away. I had it safe at what I thought was safe at people's houses until I could figure all this shit out, which was going nowhere. You know, um, I was kind of like relieved. And then I ended up, I thought that I'd be able to go through drug court and deal with it then, but then I couldn't. And I ended up getting this surmountable sentence that they started making me do the intensive outpatient. And then once I got released with like, early release so you do two-thirds of your time and you gotta go and then i'm on paper for like another year being parole or community corrections under supervision of community corrections with his which is a state version of probation that you get if you got a charge out of the county courthouse kind of thing so these guys are a lot stricter the minute you get picked up on one you're gonna go do 30 days they're just gonna pick you up and you're doing 30 days for the violation and i i had a pretty decent um i had a i without a better way to put it, I kind of bonded well with uh, the guy that was my CCO, the community corrections officer. And I, I was committed to like, I was living at a clean and sober house, trying to get a job. I got a job right away. I'm like, the number one thing is I just got to get working. I got to just keep my nose to the grind, doing three meetings a week as prescribed by that continuing aftercare at the, at the corrections office. They did aftercare for people coming out of prison to make sure that you try and, and I was subjected to UAs and I'm like, I'm not doing any of this anymore i can't i can't i can't so i got the job um i got a job working at a place and i was still looking for better work looking for better work and i ended up getting a job at a casino even with the criminal history that i had because um i uh knew the i knew the lady that i knew the hr lady i knew a bunch of people that worked there because the bar that i worked at was right next to the reservation in the town next to it and i'd met all these people before and this Mary lady, I'm like, just give me another chance, man. You know, you met me when I was doing okay. And then you saw me get really bad at that bar. You know that I'm a good person. I was really good friends with their daughter. So they gave me like a, a second chance. And I'm like, I'm like, I'm her success story. I ended up getting a letter of recommendation from the corrections officer, like the parole officer. He's like, this guy has been one of the best clients that I've ever had. Cause I asked him to write me one for, to get the job at the casino. Right. He's like, this guy's been one of the best things. He's always been on time, paying the internet, doing everything right. I'm like, that's crazy that I'm using a letter of reference for <laughs> a parole officer to get a job, right? But sure enough, there we are. And then I worked there for five years. And then now I've been living down here in blah, 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 blah for <laughs> the last eight years. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I, I won't ask you why you moved to blah, blah, blah. Uh, yeah. But it's a big cultural change. It has to be. It is, it is. Part of Canada, 
northwest part of the U.S. moving to that part of the country is, uh, I can't think of a bigger culture shock. It is and it isn't, man. It's like I'm not going out immersing myself in it so much. I grew up in Vancouver. I grew up, I lived in Edmonton. I lived in Salt Lake. Lived in Salt Lake as uh, like a 19-year-old street kid, pretty much. Hyper aware of like big cities and stuff. So the New Orleans itself wasn't culturally that big of a shock to me. It's actually really cool. Uh, the geography is a bit of a shock to me, like how flat it is. And the weather is a bit of a shock to me, but to a pleasant surprise in the sense that I'd way rather be hot for four months out of the year than deal with rain and stuff for a bunch of time, you know? So Chris, you, you're, when I met you a few weeks ago, you're like, yeah, I'm, I'm a, basically a recovering alcoholic. I've, I've been clean for a long time. I've been sober for a long time. Um, but you work in a bar. Is that hard? I I think it would have been if I didn't have that time away to get some clean time and realize that bottom that I hit and how everything correlates to that. And like people in the program would be like, so worst thing you do, you're playing with fire. Da, 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 da. But early on in my sobriety, I, as a bartender, I'd kind of pick a couple people out. You know, the two people that I pick out each day was like, see the really drunk guy. I was like, how many times was I that guy? And then the other guy would be like, would I want to fight this guy if I was drunk? And then sometimes that was the same guy. So I get the two for just for that. Oh my God, dude, you got to go. Cause I'm getting mad at you right now and I'm totally sober. <laughs> so that's what I use as like a benchmark. Like, do I ever want to be that? And then just seeing the, um, just being around like uh, a lot of the early part of it and knowing that how addiction works and stuff like that, watching people, um, even just gamble at the casino that I was working at, you know, like servers bitching about how they had to do this and that and work so hard to do this. And then as soon as you get off work, it takes a while longer to close as a bartender. You look and they're putting all their tip money back in the slot machine. It's like having a couple of drinks, like <laughs> go home, you know? Yeah. So then like, that's the one addiction that I know that I've never even gotten near, you know, there's gambling. And I don't like the way they normalize gambling in every sports show. Now I had a little Finger, finger waggle to a couple kids that were with their parents that are like 22 year olds that were in the bar a couple of days ago and they're betting on stuff. I'm like, be careful with that, man. Like it's super addicting and you won't notice until I'm like, you only bet what you can afford. Actually just don't at all. How about that? Cause you're going to end up losing in the long run anyways, you know? Yep, that's right. So that's definitely right. Uh, so besides bartending and uh, what do you, how do you spend your time? Play a lot of golf? What golf. else going on? Play golf about once a week and I go to the gym about three times a week. I'm about to go there now. And other than that, I, unfortunately I spend way too much time on like Facebook and stuck in my phone, but uh, it, it's really having an uneventful life at this age. Isn't really that bad. You know, I, I ran around crazy for the fear of missing out for all of my twenties kind of thing. Right. So it's really not that big a deal to me. It's cheaper to stay home. I'm cheap as hell. I cost money if I go and do stuff. Right. So yeah. Where's spend your money on. Go ahead. Sorry. 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 I'll just spend money on golf. <laughs> Yeah, no, I actually just, just donated some clubs today, so I felt good. It's, uh, it's it's an expensive way to spend your time, but once a week you can probably uh, get away with it. Yeah, it's not too bad. A couple hundred bucks a month, man. Yeah. Hey, so your your son, where is he these days? He's up in Vancouver. He lives in the outskirts, and he uh, owns his own company. He's an electrician up there. Nice. He's doing super good, man. He. It's got three people working for him already. And uh, I've been always totally open with him about my addiction and the problems that he has. And he talks to me a little bit about it. And 
he's fully aware of the predisposition of it on both my and his his mom's side of it like i had no idea being adopted that i was that predisposed to it you know i don't know if that would have affected or changed anything in my thinking you know but my parents had no clue of like like they're both like teetotaling like they had no idea of like it at all like oh you're just you're drinking too much and no no concept of like why i am but you know like the education and understanding of stuff like that in the 80s is way different than now you know like the, everybody's like oh society's getting softer no society's getting more evolved in the sense that you know that might have been acceptable 30 years ago but it's not now you know this behavior might have been unknown but there's reasons why that happens and you know what we have that available to you now it's like the idea of like looking up a baby book in the in the 80s versus online now of like how to deal with colic how to deal with thrush like if you didn't have if you didn't know you didn't know you know yeah. you went to the doctor and like oh my god your kid's actually colicky and had thrush that's why he's crying all the time which is like what happened with my kid you know what i mean like i mean his mom was like i don't know he's, we knew that we had we knew he was thrushy because he had like a yellow tongue but we didn't have no idea you know and then nowadays it's so society i think should be better but then i don't know it's not because there's so much misinformation right now and everybody just wants their own little confirmation bias and to believe what they want to believe is true that it just it's dividing everything even more but i don't think we're here to talk philosophy uh i mean we can if you want but greed's a big part of it too uh and so whether it's the opioid crisis or Name something where people get hurt. Um, uh, there are people making a lot of money off that, but yeah, we could go down a, a rabbit hole pretty quickly there. But it sounds like your your relationship with your son is is pretty good these days. Yeah, yeah, I talk to him like every day via Facebook Messenger because you can text message for free via that. So I talk to him every day. Yeah, that's cool. I talk to him on phone. It's a little harder to talk to the younger kids on the phone. They don't really like talking that much on it. I'm really not huge on it either. Well, I don't care either way. You know, as long as I stay in touch with them verbally. I call him every couple of weeks. We talk for a few minutes and he can tell that he kind of wants to get off the phone almost right away anyways, but he's a 26 year old kid. I'm just happy. I have contact with him. Like I go back to like how much I talked to my dad when I was 26 and that relationship really wasn't there. But I feel like our generation of parenting is a lot more involved as a father than my dad was a part of my life. But he wasn't an active part. Like so much like he didn't go out and play with me and be that like he drove me to sports and he did stuff, but there wasn't a lot of like that, familial commitment to it like the roles have changed the gender the gender disparity or um not so much but the role that you play in a in a family is different like i feel like parents are way more well males are way more involved in their parent in their kids lives now or in well, at least in the people that i've been around you know yeah, yeah. and a lot, a lot more dad kids are, or parents are proud of their kids it seems right hey, so I work with. chris you mentioned that you're adopted uh how old were you when you found out uh, I've always known. So you knew from like um, the age of like four. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've always just kind of known that I'm adopted, man. I, it, it never really. I don't know if it ever. Well, it didn't ever really bother me consciously that I know of. But in talking to a counselor and I got again, obviously, I've had some behavioral problems. I may have been substance abuse related or not. What did those stem from? And then me going back to having a BS in psychology myself and overanalyzing and being way too introspective at times, maybe like understanding where these things stem from, you know, and having a couple of theories about that. Definitely attachment theory. I don't know if you're familiar with Mary Ainsworth and John Bobley attachment theory. If you ever look that up, it has, all has to do with them. The study that they did is a long story short, they have three different types of attachment secure ambivalent and avoidant 
And the way that they test it for is they bring people into a mother and son into a room <laughs> with like two observers. And then they'd be like, all right, well, Hey, we're going to go talk to your mom outside for a little while. You guys play over here with toys and stuff. Da, 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 da. And so then what they do is they have the parents come back in and the kids that were attached to Curly, they come up, grab the, grab the kid, grab the mom's leg. Hey mom. All right. Checking in, go off. The kid that was ambivalently attached, like sometimes you got love, sometimes you didn't know. They would come up and they would be the worst. They'd be like, oh my God, I don't know how to react. I'm going to cry because I was scared. Holy shit, what do I do? And then the other one would be avoiding where like their parents really aren't a part of their lives. They'd look up at them and they have, fuck, you don't care anyways. So they go on and keep playing with the kid. And they'd study that and they, that, that stemmed from them looking at back up post-World War II, all the orphanages that they had. Um, they were in like Hungary and stuff like that. They were putting kids in they're putting kids in um like big huge tubs and washing them with hoses and never touching them because they didn't want they thought that any sort of attachment to these kids at all is going to be terrible and you as nurses you can't do that we have to keep them separate until they get adopted da, 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 da. and then they started looking at that as being wrong you know and then they had that other study where they have like a a monkey with like a fake mom and they if they have fur on it that will attach to it but if it's just the wire structure of it it doesn't and stuff like that so Again, sorry, just delving into the mice. So that I believe having a weird attachment with my mom and being ambivalent and now being in a really strong marriage for nine years and identifying some of the things where I may fail. A lot of that has to do with just, I think, I think that, I don't know, I could never study it, you know, but it's weird. Yeah. There's, there's this fine line between critical thinking and overthinking. Yes, for sure. Right. Yeah, Without yeah. a doubt. That's so true. That's so true. So, uh, whatever you're comfortable with. Tell me about your, your wife of nine years. Uh, she was born and raised. She was born and raised in Washington state. I met her. He, we both have come out of like fairly toxic relationships. She got a job at my job up in Washington. Cause she wanted a job. That was fun. We hit it off really well and just ended up being together. And then I, I came down here with her for her job. Yeah. So, um, she's awesome. She's, she, she was, uh, partying a little bit when we first met, she was drinking and I had a couple coworkers be like, well, you're married an alcoholic. You're not drinking. I'm like, Hey man, I'm going to be hanging around with addicts, addicts and alcoholics, whether they're sober or not, just because that's how my personality is, which is what I learned at a meeting and it really stuck or maybe it was streaming. And I don't even know if it's true. So I'm like, she'll, and I really loved her. And I'm like, you know, I can deal with her drinking a little bit. She wasn't like a terrible drunk. She just liked to, she was one of those people that was just a, a maintenance drinker, just have a couple of drinks every day. Da, 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 da. And then she decided to stop drinking like three years ago. And I, I kind of like a part of my brain is like, you know, she'll see that I'm not drinking and we're going out and doing all these things. It's probably catch on that you don't really need to, you know, it's kind of overrated, you know? And I think she developed, she started drinking later on in her life. She didn't have like an early drinking career like I did. And she's awesome. She's 100% supportive. I've never been in a better relationship. So uh, I know uh, recovering alcoholics don't like talking about uh, AA a lot, but are, are you still active in that? No. Was that, part? Was that ever a thing no, for you? It was for a while. And um, it's just, it's kind of prissy. It's kind of a uh, culty and it, relies too much on the premise of God being your higher power and all that. And, uh, and people like, if you're not, if you're not Christian, then people look a little bit toward you. For me, the, the idea of God was that I learned was good orderly direction. 
And my higher power literally was the group because I couldn't do it without them and hearing their stories and how effed up their lives were when they were young and some of the things that they went through that I hadn't been through again yet, you know, and I could very well get there. And I kind of felt like, although NA, there was a lot of people faking and a lot of people still using in NA and AA was a little more making sure that, you know, you don't, you can come there drunk, but you don't want you to come there drunk. Where like people that were still high at some of the NA meetings and stuff. NA was a lot less snobby and I felt a lot more welcomed at NA and people were a lot more understanding without that aloofness of like, well, you know, here at AA, we're just drunks. You're, you're, you're a drug addict. And it, like, that's, there's almost that differentiation sometimes where that's what I felt. I mean, no, 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 for sure. It was real, man. Like, I'm not saying how I felt. I don't know why I have to give a disclaimer about that feeling. Cause it was totally true. And yeah. like, so, um, so yeah, I, I kind of went away from meetings a little while. Uh, I ended up when my wife was in, she had to go away when she went and did some treatment. I went and did a couple meetings just to show her solidarity. And I went and met her up there and it is good to put your back in your, it's good to go to one every once in a while. I, I don't I haven't. And they say that it's good for your sobriety, but I'm like, I you can't ever say that I've grappled it because I know that that monkey's just doing pushups waiting for me to mess up. But I have every day I, I'm, I'm around people that still are engaged in that activity. And it just reminds me of like, it's, it's useless and it, it go nowhere. And it's just so much discomfort for that little bit of better feeling. And if you would just address what the underlying things are that are making you hide, which is what's most substance abuse, like all of substance abuse is really, then maybe then you can get it through life on life's terms, which is one of those catchphrases and in, in the, in the program kind of thing. Right. I don't mind AA at all. And I, it does people a lot of good. And it's really cool that you can do online meetings. It's really cool that they'll have a like 24 hour AA meetings on like all the major holidays that you can go to a hall and be around people like 24 hours a day. And it does some people really, really, really good. Other people that turns into their crutch and then they're doing like three meetings a day and they're just being over the top about everything about it, you know, and I couldn't have done it without God. No, God's the same for, I'm not going to get into religion. <laughs> uh, it's like, well, no, you can't, you can't say one without the other, you know, cause he's also the same guy that let you do that. That whatever. Anyways, I'm not going to even go down that road. So it, I, I have nothing wrong with a, maybe the concept of, it is a little dated and there are other treatment programs, but I don't think there's anyone that's been proven to be as successful of that. But it, it, again, you have to go uh, cross methodology and different things to, I think, heal properly. Like there is, it isn't like you fit into the mold of like, let's do our 12 steps and boom, look at you. You're all better. You know, cause a lot of people, it's a lot harder to let go of resentments. A lot of people, I, I carried guilt around forever. That was the biggest thing is figuring out that, I don't have to feel guilty about all this stuff, all these mistakes that I made that I explained to you early in the thing while I had a kid and I was really young and I was, and he was really young and I was still doing all this stupid shit. I didn't have to carry that, carry that around with me anymore. And once I let that go, that was such a huge thing, you know, of being able to understand that I got to get past that and live in the now, you know? Yeah. I mean, look, it's really simple to say and, and sounds kind of trite, but yeah, learn from the past, but live in the moment. Right. Um, yes. It's really easy to say uh, you've lived it. It's it's really hard to get past your past, but once you do, I imagine it's quite liberating. It is. It is. Yeah, well, man. First, thank you. Thank you for this conversation, man. Yeah, I, I hope uh, it was good for you. I, it was a bit of a roller coaster ride because I mean, your life is it's taking some turns that I can't even comprehend. Um, <laughs> I, I told I you. <laughs> I, I told you I had some stories, man. I was like, all right, you want to hear it? I don't, and I, I have, dude, it's part of my program, man. I, I'll preach to the highest mountain of like 
the tribulations that I went through and all this stupid trial and error science that I had to do to figure it out that hopefully if I can stop one person from making the same stupid mistakes that I did, then, then everything is worth it. You know? Hey, you have a BS in psychology, you said, right? Yes, sir. Uh, have you ever thought about pursuing anything along that front? I have. Um, the idea of going back to school for another couple of years is really scary to me because uh, I finished my degree in my 40s and that was hard enough. And now I'm older and even less elastic and spongy as far as my brain goes. It's just not as fast. The 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 recall and encoding doesn't work quite as well as it did. Like I was a whippersnapper when I was young. I could read a couple pages of notes and literally see those notes on a test. Like be like, oh, that answer? Yeah, that was on the bottom of that page. Uh, what were those four things again? Oh, I made an acronym for it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now it's like, I don't know. And so the GRE scares the shit out of me a little bit too. I'm thinking maybe uh, my wife's doing, she's really working on her career right now. I got a really good job where I'm working. I'm thinking maybe get into like um, some chemical dependency counseling maybe later on when I can afford to like retire and just do that part-time because it doesn't pay a lot. And then I'll give my community service back that way. But right now, because of the stupid things that I did, I have to catch up on my retirement and savings because of all the dumb partying I did when I was in my twenties and stuff, you know? Yeah. Well, that's cool, Chris. Well, Hey, I appreciate you doing this. Uh, I, when I interacted with you at the, the place, I uh, I told my wife I said I, I think I'm going to ask him to be on the podcast because he seems like a uh, he's got some stories to tell and uh, yeah you were you were certainly lighter when I met you uh, but I'm I'm glad we got into some uh, deep stuff and if it helped uh, to talk about it a little bit uh, then then that's awesome yeah I was that was one of the hesitations that I had is that uh, I don't have the energy of being behind a bar with a crowd that ch that enlightens my mood and makes me like funnier turns me into a bit more of the performance person you know what i mean yeah, yeah, so yeah. i'm sorry if this so if i sold you short I, I wasn't asking you to perform i was asking to have a real conversation with you so i appreciate that all right man cool thank you for listening if you enjoy this episode please subscribe to wherever you listen to podcasts we'd also really appreciate if you'd rate and review us you can find us at scodopodcast.com Oh,